Lord, the song that we have in our heart, You put there. And Father, we are so grateful that our song will never end. And because You are the Lord of eternity, our songs will be sung eternally. Hallelujah. Ten thousand and a thousand more. So much praise and adoration we owe you. We want to give you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice that he made in our behalf. That we might live. That we might have life. Abundant life here. And life eternal to come. We thank you and praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So, uh, Lionel V. Uh, Mayol or Mayel, I'm not exactly sure. If you know his name, you can, you can help me after how to pronounce his last name. But anyway, he's the visionary who was uh, dubbed the founder of the modern condominium. He was an ordinary man. Uh, he was born in uh, Ontario, Canada in 1897, and uh, he was a tiny, tiny baby. He was so small, they didn't even put him in a crib, they put him in a drawer. Ultimately, he grew to five foot two. Um, after his five-year-old uh, younger brother died, though, of uh, dysentery, his parents' grief really uh, left Lionel emotionally alone. And so, in, as a part of that, he began to work. He worked at a tuna packing plant, and he got himself to college, though. He went to Occidental College and uh, law school. And during his studies, uh, that's when he became enamored with this notion that people don't have to buy houses in order to have a home. They can buy apartments. And so, the notion of condominiums uh, came, came along. Especially, he noted this, as he saw this flow from the north, uh, from where he was at, uh, to the south, in Florida and California. So he pitched this idea to a local senator who thought this uh, young idea man had had something uh, there. And so soon he made a corporation, uh, built the first uh, condominiums, and became a millionaire uh, in the uh, 20s, which is a tremendous amount of uh, money. But anyway, sadly, he, his life was not well orchestrated. Uh, two marriages, two divorces, two children, and then the Depression hit, and people stopped buying condos, and he had spent all his money. And so by the age of uh, 39, he had made his fortune, he had lost his fortune, he had tried to establish a couple of families, he had lost those families, and he ended up managing an apartment complex uh, that was not his own. and it, But it was in that complex that he met a woman named Dorothy. And he gave Dorothy a ride to the uh, grocery store in his uh, beat-up old uh, car. But through her influence, uh, he became a, a believer. And they fell in love, and together they became life partners. So he wanted to start over with her. And so he took out a $1,000 loan... And he began by taking half that thousand dollars, five hundred dollars, 
and he gave it to a Christian evangelical youth group that two years later, uh, maybe three, would became known as Campus Crusade for Christ and is now known as Crew. Now, remember me telling you about that young man in the pistachio green suit and the flaming red tie? Well, Lionel was the man who funded and invited him to the revival and introduced us to a then unknown 25-year-old Reverend Billy Graham. Billy and Ruth Graham, in fact, they both spoke at Lionel's uh, memorial service uh, when he died as they had remained friends their in, entire lives. He was so important. Even the, the city council of Los Angeles, they, they, they didn't have any meetings that day in memory of one of the city's most outstanding citizens. He was an ordinary man who did an extraordinary thing for Christ, and most of us have never heard his name. Many years before that, another ordinary man introduced someone to our awareness. That, that man's name was Andrew. So read with me uh, John chapter 1. And we're just looking at a few verses today, very few. Uh, 40 through uh, 42. I'll read 40 and 41 uh, now. John 1, uh, 40 and 41. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, although we don't know much about Andrew, we do know a little bit. We don't know a lot, but what we Uh, do know is that we owe a a debt to him. Why? He introduced Simon to the Lord. Simon to soon be called Peter uh, to Jesus. The Greek Orthodox Church uh, refers to Andrew as the uh, protokletos, which means the first one called. He's the first one uh, called. And Andrew spent three years of his life studying and uh, serving the kingdom of uh, God. And then he spent the rest of his life evangelizing, discipling, and uh, bringing people closer to the Lord. And he's a man that we could pattern our lives after and uh, to follow Jesus. I'm reminded in Luke 14 where it, it says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is what Andrew did. Yet, before Andrew brought his brother to Jesus, he brought himself to Jesus. He, he listened, he heard, he came to the Messiah. And so, while we may be involved in evangelistic efforts, we may be involved in helping others, the first people that need to come to him, it's you, it's me. Uh, If we try to bring our friends to Jesus Christ and we ourselves are not followers of Christ, we will not be successful. So the question is, is, have you come uh, to Christ? One of the truisms in life, in all of life properly understood, is found in the uh, Latin phrase, nemo dat quod 
non-habet, which means, translated, you cannot give what you do not have. Uh, lawyers would recognize that, uh, that phrase because it's in the legal world, meaning you can't sell property that you don't own. That will get you into trouble. Everyone else knows Nemo, though. And so Nemo means no one, which is so finding Nemo was kind of an appropriately aptly named for that little character who was completely lost in the middle of the ocean. But, but this isn't about property. This truth, it has some value in that, but the greater value is in the spiritual uh, realm. You can only love another person to the degree that you have love inside of you. In other words, we love because why? Because Christ loved us. The only amount of joy that you can have that's contagious for others is the joy that you have in your own heart. You can't be more patient than you are patient. In other words, if, if you don't have patience, you can't give patience. If you have not found the Messiah, you cannot introduce the, the Messiah to another person in a meaningful way. For your cup to overflow, you have to have a cup that's overflowing. And when we see this and understand this, you cannot give what you don't have, then you understand more about what Andrew tells Simon in verse 41. We have found the Messiah. Oh, by the way, as a, purely an aside, you have to do on a regular basis things that are life-giving to you. It's the same principle as on an airline flight. You put the oxygen mask on you first. It sounds selfish, but it is really not. And the reason for that is, is if you're out of the picture, that you cannot help anyone around you. And so have, have these things. Bring in this. The things that you can give are the things that you have, and those are given to us by the Lord, by his word. And once Andrew found Jesus, he immediately uh, bolted uh, and found uh, Simon. Why? I mean, I think Simon was probably the closest and dearest person to him, other than the disciple who's not named here, which is the second one, which is John. So John is always hanging around in this book, but he doesn't name himself, but he's there, eyewitness to these things. So he went and he found Simon, and he told him the good news. We have found uh, the Messiah. I mean, when good things happen, right, we want to tell those who are closest to us. At, over time, uh, as we age... We understand, we learn, it's intuitive, but it takes a long time to dawn on our awareness. It's not what you do, it's not the event, it's not the sight that you see, it's who you see it with. It's the event that you have some community with, with another person or, or persons. That's why community is so important, because standing alone uh, is, is not a place that we want to be now, it does seem like they had been searching for the Messiah for some time. This word "found," uh, some of you who are in uh, academia will will love this word. It's where we get our word "heuristic" from. 
That means a process. We don't know what the outcome is. We are in a process of discovery. We have found him. That's the word that's used here. They'd probably been looking for quite some uh, time. And it's about a process of discovery. And we can discover a few things about Andrew a little bit more. First and most fascinating to me, and I can't wait to get into glory to ask Andrew or Andrew's uh, mom and dad, what in the world is this all about? Because, and you may not even know this, you may not even be aware of this, but Andrew is a Greek name. Now, in the Jewish families, they didn't give their children Greek names. They just did not do it. His brother's name was Simon, Simeon. So you have this name here where you go, this is, this is a straight-up Greek, you know? It comes from Andros, the San Andreas Fault, St. Andrew. It's, the notion is the word means man, or in this particular case, uh, manly, so... I don't know how he ended up as an adult, but as a child, he was named Manly. When you understand Hebrew naming practices culturally, it was almost always something associated near the birth. And we, we see this all through the Old Testament. And, and it was usually the mother naming the child, and it had something to do with circumstances surrounding the birth. And I really want to know what was so powerful that a Jewish family in Israel would name their son a, a Greek name. I can only uh, presume that something very significant happened there. And perhaps, and this is just a, it's, it's just one of these things, is this connected, Lord? Uh, you know, when you get up there and you ask these questions, is this, is this connected? Because what you see is uh, that he has never given another name. He's never called another name. Perhaps this is why when Jesus entered into uh, Jerusalem just before the Passover, a bunch of Greek uh, God-fearers came to Philip and and asked to see Jesus. And so Philip uh, decided to do what? He brought them to Andrew and let Andrew decide what to do. The text says, Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. I mean, it seems like Philip is deferring to Andrew. Why is this? We don't know. But that's one of the four times he's specifically mentioned. He's mentioned about 12 times, but ordinarily just part of a a, a list. But one of the things that we do know is he was part or very near to the inner uh, circle. So, for example, when Jesus spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem at the temple in Mark about the times of the, the end, and, uh, and he said that uh, it's all going to be destroyed, not one stone is going to be left on another, uh, everyone will be thrown down. Later on, when they're on the Mount of Olives, it specifically says that Peter, James, John, and Andrew... Ask the Lord privately, what in the world are you talking about? What that shows is that he was in this group that was able to ask these questions privately. And then Jesus, really, that, that catapulted him into a lengthy uh, teaching about the end 
uh, times. Now, all, all three of the synoptics record this, but uh, only Mark specifies who was there. And so every time we see Andrew, he is bringing someone to the Messiah. Uh, I suppose that he had the uh, same kind of impact for Christ as Edward Kimball did. Is that like Lionel to you guys? Edward Kimball? Show of hands. Edward Kimball? No, not the guy on The Fugitive. No. I mean, his name perhaps doesn't ring a, a bell. Uh, for one reason, he was admittedly shy. Uh, he really didn't like uh, the spotlight at all. But he did teach Sunday school. And there was young, one young man who wouldn't go to Sunday school. And he just decided, you know what? If he won't come to me, I'll, I'll go to him. And so he went to the shoe store and he talked to Dwight at his work. And through Kimball, Dwight gave his heart to the Lord. You probably know Dwight as D.L. Moody. But it was D.L. Moody's ministry in England who motivated Frederick Meyer to become an evangelist. And then he came over to America to evangelize here. And while there, one J. Wilbur Chapman gave his life to Christ. And he too became an evangelist. And on Chapman's staff was one Billy Sunday, who served on his uh, team. And one day, their revival ministry inspired a group of men in North Carolina to call Mordecai Ham to preach the gospel there. And a young man named William attended these services by Mordecai, and he became a Christian, giving his heart to the Lord. William, otherwise known as uh, Billy, Billy Graham. Yet, he probably, arguably, has preached the gospel to more people than anyone ever has in the world. But it was that introduction by Kimball and ultimately that first introduction of Simon to Christ that we have this. Now, who, who led Kimball to the Lord? Not a clue. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. There's another thing that we know about Andrew, and that, that he was a man of faith who absolutely did not despise the day of small things. You remember when the disciples were at a loss as to how to feed the, the 5,000. It was uh, Andrew who, who brought the young boy to Jesus. And as it turns out, that was more than enough. I'm, I'm, I'll read that text. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, uh, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Uh, I, I love that because Jesus does this all the time. I love it when he does this kind of thing. And, and looking at the man, you know, he spoke to the woman or something like that. Because the text goes on to say, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient that every one of them may have a little. And one of his uh, disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small 
fishes. But, or two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in the number of about 5,000. That means there was a whole bunch more people there. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. What, what a fantastic lesson for us. Uh, no small thing is insignificant in the hands of Jesus. Whatever we can bring him, he can multiply beyond our wildest imagination and we miss this small gift because we're focused on the feeding of the many but Jesus was focused on the the gift the faith and he was able to use that you know it doesn't take a lot but it does take something Andrew was the first along with John to hear that Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was the first to follow Christ. His name is going to be inscribed along with the other apostles on the foundation of the eternal city, the new Jerusalem. Uh, Best of all, uh, I think, in terms of ministry, he spent a lifetime doing what it is that he loved to do, and that is bringing people to Jesus. Andrew had no degree from a Bible college or a seminary. He didn't have the answers he wasn't paid staff. He wasn't, a, he wasn't even a member of the church, synagogue probably. Uh, he wasn't a mature follower of Jesus, obviously. He had just begun that life. Uh, what we know is this. We don't need to know all the answers. We don't need to be in some kind of position where, oh, that person is an evangelist, let them go do it. No, what we learn from Andrew is that that's, our responsibility. Each one of us individually have the responsibility to win our friends and in specifically, I think, at least to attempt to win our family first. It's obvious that Simon was looking for the Messiah, but in this, uh, we, we come and uh, learn about Jesus and be baptized for that matter. Now in verse 42, we find something that's exceedingly rare in the Bible, and a one-off in the New Testament. And that is, the text says, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, we pronounce it Cephas, it doesn't really matter, but if you want to know, it's, it's, it's a kuh. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not Cephas, but uh, Cephas. In the ancient world, most people were known uh, by a name, where they were from. So you had uh, like Simon from Bethany, for an example. Well, there's a Simon from Bethany, and if that gets confusing, then they add it a little bit. Maybe it was, you know... Uh, Simon, you know, the son of Elijah, who knows. But anyway, uh, even there in the in parts of the Middle East, at least, where uh, Barbara and I were, it's still true today. So my designation was Abu Michel, which means um, the, the father of Michel. That's how I was known. And I was from 
Amen. So Abu Michelle min Amen. I couldn't say, I, I, I had to say I was from Amen. I couldn't say I was Jordanian because I'm not. But we, regardless, we received a package in, in Amen uh, with, with just my name on it. No, and it came through the postal system. And they, they knew who I was, you know. So it's like, okay. So in Jesus' time, people spoke their own dialect, and they went by this, typically, the, the one the one name. Simon Peter is not uh, two words. I, I mean, it, well, I suppose technically it's two words, but it's the same word. Well, Cephas is Peter, and that is because they spoke the lingua franca, which in that day was Greek. So, for example, to his friends, Thomas was Thomas. But to everyone else, which Thomas is, uh, anyone care to guess? Thomas is the Hebrew word or the Aramaic word for twin. His, he was known to the outside as Didymus, which is the Greek word for twin, uh, Right? And so you have the Greek words uh, here also, uh, Dorcas. You remember Dorcas? Dorcas, that's a Greek word. What was her Hebrew name? It was Tabitha. And so what is that in uh, Aramaic and Greek, by the way? Gazelle. Uh, so then Simon, uh, which means it comes from the root where we get Shema. The Shema is to listen, to hear. And so his name meant hear or, or to listen. And he was renamed by Jesus to Cephas. In Greek, Petrus. And so Simon became Peter. Not different names, different languages. Why is this significant? Because only four times in Scripture did God change somebody's name. Four times in the entire Bible did this happen. And what you have is, uh, some would like to include Saul to Paul, but God didn't do that. We don't know how that name was changed. But the ones we do know for sure are Abram and Sarai. You know, they became a parents of a nation. We first read about Abram. He was a wealthy landowner who lived in Haran. And in Genesis 11, we, we, we see that the man had everything that he could possibly want, with the exception of one thing, and that would be a child. And so in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, it says, God says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And he changed their names from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. And then you have uh, Jacob. What a guy this was. From, from, essentially from deceiving to uh, devout. Jacob's birth was just seconds after his twin brother Esau, and it illustrates this, what his name was, surrounded by birth. His uh, name, uh, Jacob, uh, Yaqub, meant to, to, to seize or to, to grab the heel, because uh, he was hanging on to Esau when he came out. And uh, boy, did they, have, did they have trouble. But many years later, as he was about to face Esau again, after some... Uh, trickery, uh, he feared that Esau was going to kill him. And so in Genesis 32, there was a situation where God intervenes. Jacob was alone, 
And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day it has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So this new name commemorated Jacob's direct engagement with God. And over time, that uh, this, his stature uh, raised. And as he went from this selfish, uh, greedy person uh, to someone who was uh, accepting uh, God's lordship over over his life. And then finally we come to Simon. Essentially standing uh, firm on this uh, this rock, this stone. Imagine being one of thousands of uh, uh, fishermen uh, and you go from that to becoming a pillar uh, in the church. That's the experience that Peter had. Everything changed that day when... Jesus changed his name. So what's the significance? Why do we care about names? I'm going to tell you something that you know or that you have known, that you've forgotten, or that perhaps you never knew. And that is this. You're going to be named by God. And that name is a name that out of all the people who have ever lived or ever will live out of all the occupants uh, in the vaults of glory only God and you will know that name revelation 217 he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. So when John wrote this, the book of Revelation, what in the world was the significance of the white stone? It had to do with judgment. It had to do with the, the white stone with your name on it. Uh, think of a, uh, what is it? What's the sword that the Roman emperor would give? The, the Rudic and the wooden sword and what it represents was your freedom, your innocence, uh, your acquittal. It means that you were free forever from condemnation. And this new name that only God and you know from eternity is how God sees you. He doesn't see us in our humanity. No more battle to overcome sin, but a new creation of eternal purity. So Lionel introduced the world to Billy Graham. Mordecai Ham introduced Billy Graham to Jesus. And I just want to read in Billy Graham's own words, not about Mordecai or about Lionel, about how to trust Christ. I read of a woman who tried her driver's test for the 38th time and failed in England. Perhaps you've tried nearly that many times in religion, but haven't found it. You're still searching. 
you're still wondering, you're still uncertain about the future, you're not absolutely sure, there's still a vacuum there, there's still a search. I'm asking you, he says tonight, but I ask you this morning, to move over, to trust the Holy Spirit to drive and to control your life. You can do that, and I'm going to ask you to do it. And you say, well, what do I have to do? Three things are important for you to do. First, you must repent of sin. Repentance means that you change your way of living and change your thinking. Be willing for a change to take place. The second thing, by faith. And faith and repentance go together. There's no dichotomy. They go together. You repent, you believe, believe in Christ. You don't believe in anything else for your salvation except the Lord Jesus Christ. And you receive him in your heart and say, Lord Jesus, come in. And he will come in. Then the third thing is to obey him. Say, Lord, I know I can't live the Christian life. And Billy Cram can't live the Christian life. And John Tillery can't live the Christian life. And include your name in that. You cannot do it. If I didn't have the help of the Holy Spirit every day, I'd be a total failure every day. But the Holy Spirit comes and lives through you and in you and gives you the power to resist the temptation you never had before and gives you a new joy and a new peace that you never knew existed. That can all be yours if you're willing to say, Lord, I do repent and receive you. I open my heart to you. From Andrew until now, our role is to introduce people to Jesus Christ so that in turn, they too might introduce. It doesn't matter whether you reach one or millions, as some have, but that we do the work. Father, we are deeply thankful that someone took the time, the energy, and the effort to tell us about Jesus. Lord, each one of us who know you has a story. No matter how large, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly insignificant or how great, you are at the center of it. The center of it all. And may our lives, even when with words unspoken, be a reflection of you and your glory to those around us. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.